0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, today, the scripture reading will be from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 through 24. But thanks be to God, who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. And we have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our readiness, taking precaution that no one should discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for the great confidence and hope that we have in you. We thank you, Lord, that that hope has a calling, Lord, a call to to ministry and service that is joy uh, for us in life. Lord, we thank you uh, that we can be a source of praise to you uh, in each other's lives. Lord, we pray that uh, this morning as Tom delivers Uh, This message that we would have open hearts, Lord, ready to be convicted of the ways in which we have not taken uh, one aspect or another of this um, example of how to walk the walk of uh, servants and of Christ and sons of the living God. Lord, we pray that we would take that seriously, Lord. We pray that you would speak through Tom, Lord, and speak to the spirit within each of us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.
1: Good morning. This is the third of what I expect to be four messages on the uh, instruction that Paul gives in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 on the matter of giving. Um, This particular message of this particular passage focuses a whole lot on on how we handle money in the body of Christ, and it's quite instructive. Um, There are many churches that uh, in the history of of at least nominal Christianity, those who claim to be Christian. There are many churches that have that have failed miserably in this regard, that have mismanaged money, that have misappropriated money, that have handled money in a very corrupt and self-serving manner. Um, this passage tells us how to handle God's money that He has given to the saints and that the saints are contributing to his work on earth in a manner that really honors him. Um, In these two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, Paul is appealing to the Corinthian saints to follow through on their their previous commitment to participate in this much-needed financial gift that uh, is being gathered in many churches, churches in Asia Minor, which we now know as Turkey. Churches in Macedonia and down here in Achaia, the that area that we know as Greece today. Many churches that had been planted and nurtured uh, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Uh, the collection was being taken up in, across many of those different churches. In this morning's passage, Paul commends three men that make up the team that's going to travel to all of those churches to receive the money that each church has set aside for this gift. Paul indicates in verse 19 that he will be traveling with these men, at least to some of the churches. He he speaks of us in in the group that's traveling. Paul's very enthusiastic commendation of these three men gives us many valuable insights into what it means to handle other people's money exceedingly well on Christ's behalf within the church. Kent Hughes uh, calls these three men the righteous brothers. (laughs) You have to be nearly as old as I am to get that reference, but in his strong commendation of these men, Paul uses a word that shows up seven times in, in chapters seven and eight of this letter, and only twice anywhere else in Paul's letters. It shows up four times just in the verses we're looking at this morning. And that word is translated variously in mainstream English Bibles as earnest, enthusiastic, or diligent. I favor the translation earnest because it captures both of the key elements of the word, which are eagerness, eagerness, eagerness and diligence, or if you want to put it a different way, zeal and diligence. Zeal is about the attitude of the heart. Diligence is about the quality of the action that proceeds from that attitude. It's possible, of course, to be zealous for a particular work, but not diligent in carrying it out. And it's possible to be diligent in doing what a particular task requires, yet not do it with your, with your whole heart. But earnestness includes both. Diligence with zeal. The first member of this three-man team that Paul commends in the passage is a dearly beloved brother named Titus. And when I say dearly, dearly loved, Titus was dearly loved not just by Paul, he was dearly loved by the Corinthians. And by the way, I believe he was also well-known and loved by the saints in Jerusalem who were going to be the recipients of this gift, and I'll explain how that happened in just a minute. Most of what we know about Titus we actually know from this epistle, 2 Corinthians. He's mentioned nine times in 2 Corinthians, another four times across Galatians, 2 Timothy, and of course Paul's letter to Titus, directly to Titus that goes by that name. Uh, He's not mentioned at all in the book of Acts by name. Um, So this letter tells us most of what we know about him, and it tells us a lot. Uh, Paul speaks of none of his trusted co-workers with greater praise, confidence, and personal affection than he holds for this man, Titus. Here in 2 Corinthians 8.23, Paul describes Titus as, quote, my partner and my fellow worker among you. Later in chapter 12, verse 18, Paul says of himself and of Titus, did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Titus was an exceedingly faithful and trustworthy ambassador of Christ and emissary of the Apostle Paul. Now roughly half a decade earlier, somewhere around 50 A.D., Paul had traveled to Jerusalem for the pivotal meeting with the elders of the Jerusalem church that is recorded in Acts 15, the meeting that that we now often call the Jerusalem Council. Paul had brought with him Barnabas, a faithful Jewish believer, and Titus. And in Galatians chapter 2, we learn that Titus was a Greek. A Gentile by birth, and that Paul, a Jew, had not required Titus to be circumcised after coming to faith. And that was a big deal with some of the Jewish believers. Titus's inclusion in Paul's entourage for that critically important meeting in Jerusalem with the leaders of that mostly Jewish church in Jerusalem, it was a very strategic move on Paul's part. Titus was, if you will, he was. He was Paul's poster child for God's inclusion of Gentile believers in his newly created spiritual household, the church. The, the very close bond and the unwavering trust that existed between Paul, who called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, and Titus, who was a very Gentile Greek, was a, a, a marvelous and visible display of the oneness That all believers of all backgrounds have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Titus had been an in-person reminder to the Jewish saints in Jerusalem that Gentile Christians were not required to be circumcised or to observe other religious practices required under the law of Moses. In, In short, uh, just as God had made clear to Peter in Acts chapter 10 when the sheet came down, God demonstrated through Paul and Titus that Gentile believers were clean in the eyes of God without becoming Jewish proselytes who were submitted to the, to the law of Moses. And the fact that Titus was now being put in charge of, of gathering and transporting this financial gift that would go to the Jerusalem church was a further powerful reminder to, to all the churches that we are one in Christ. Uh, the one thing I would mention here is that our handling of money is, is intended by God to be a, a, a powerful demonstration of the oneness that we have in Christ. And that should factor into how we spend the money that is given in the church. As you may recall, Paul had recently sent Titus to Corinth after a very painful exchange with the saints in that city, uh, an exchange that had occurred both in person, in a short visit, an unplanned visit that Paul made, and then after that in a letter of rebuke that he sent to the Corinthian saints that was apparently quite severe, um, Paul had the reason for that strong rebuke was a, a mutiny that was that was happening in the city of Corinth against Paul's apostolic authority and thus against the authority of Jesus who had appointed Paul as his his uh representative to the Gentiles his apostle to the Gentiles. When Paul sent Titus to Corinth after that very painful episode neither of them knew whether things would go well or badly. They had a lot of evidence that it might go very badly. But because of God's marvelous and gracious work in the hearts of the Corinthian saints through Paul's loving rebuke, there had been a wonderful repentance. And Titus's time in Corinth had gone exceedingly well. And that's what we find reported in chapter 7. In Second Corinthians 7, Paul just spoke of the abundant affection that Titus had come to have for his brothers and sisters in Corinth. He was refreshed by them. Uh, Paul rejoices in the excellent reception that they had given to, to his emissary. Now in chapter 8, Paul tells us that because of the earnestness that God had put in Titus's heart toward these Corinthian saints, Titus had not merely accepted this assignment to spearhead the gathering of all these contributions. He had chosen the assignment. He was looking forward to going to many churches, and he was very much looking forward to going to the saints in Corinth. There was no arm-twisting required. In this team of three men, Titus was very likely the best known to the saints in Corinth, And his role in this project should have given them great confidence that their money would be handled with godly integrity that was driven by godly love. Paul goes on in chapter 8, verses 18 and 19, to commend the second of the three men who would soon come to Corinth and to many other cities to collect this gift. He said, and we have sent along with him, along with Titus, the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work. This second man in the three-man team was apparently not part of Paul's own close circle of co-workers that included men like Timothy and Titus, Silas, Aristarchus, and others. Paul doesn't, he doesn't talk in real personal terms about this man as if he knew him deeply himself. This man, Paul says, was selected not by Paul for this task, but by the churches that were participating in the gift. The word appointed here literally means to choose by raising hands. This second man had apparently been chosen by vote, In the churches that were going to contribute to this gift. They selected a man whose fame, literally whose praise in the gospel, had spread through all the churches. Bible scholars have suggested many names for this guy, including Apollos, Luke, and others, but the simple fact is that, that we don't know who he was or why Paul didn't give us his name. If we were supposed to know, we'd know. Considering that this man was well known in many churches for his devotion to the gospel, it's conceivable that he was already in the crosshairs of Jewish and Roman authorities by the time Paul wrote this letter, which might help explain Paul's exclusion of omission of his name, but we, we don't know. We really don't know. Now, there are a couple of things in Paul's commendation of this second man that we would do very well to bear in mind when we select people to handle money contributed by the saints for the support of the saints. First, it was not this man's prowess with an abacus that prompted the churches to commission him for this task. It was not his expertise with bookkeeping it was his love for the gospel of Jesus Christ. A man who is bold and zealous in the, in, in the gospel is not likely going to be seeking his own personal gain, especially, <laughs> especially in first century Rome at a time when persecution against Christians was gaining more and more steam. A man whose hope is fixed not on the wealth and security that he can get his hands on here and now, but is instead fixed entirely on the grace to be brought to him at the revelation of Jesus Christ, is not likely to pilfer other people's money the way Judas did. So the very first instructive attribute uh, in this, of this man was his zeal for the gospel of Jesus. It's a great, it's a great earmark when we're looking for someone to handle money. The second was that because this man had not been chosen by Paul, but by the churches that were contributing to this gift, there was an added level of accountability within this team, right? His inclusion in this group of godly men helped to rule out the possibility of false accusations of collusion within this team with Paul to somehow rip off the saints. And and I think it's pretty clear from from the things that Paul says here in Second Corinthians, that's, that those kinds of accusations were being made. Considering the great pains that Paul had taken to ensure the integrity of this whole process, I suspect that it was Paul himself who instructed all these churches to pick someone themselves who would be part of this team someone that they could heartily endorse for the work. Paul's commendation of the third member of this three-man team, who is also not named, is found in verse 22. It says, And we have sent with them, with Titus and this second man, we have sent our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many things, but now even more earnest because of his great confidence in you. This third brother, like Titus, was, was very well known to Paul and to his co-workers. Paul says he, he and his co-workers had often tested him and found him to be earnest, zealous, and diligent in many things, in many things. Earnestness is a, is a, a character trait that affects everything that you touch. One, one more very obvious condition for the formation of this team was that it was, it was to be a team, not a person, right? It is necessary that more than one person be in the mix when it comes to handling financial gifts in the body. It's necessary. By sending three men to gather these contributions, Paul was displaying to all of the churches his his devotion to the integrity of the process. In verse 23, Paul gives the Corinthians a very concise summary of all that he has just said about these these three men. He says, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, the, the two unnamed men, they are messengers of the churches a glory to Christ. A glory to Christ. That's what this is all about glorifying Christ. That's what the handling of money in the church is all about. Is the glory of Christ. There are three criteria that I see here that kind of stand out for selecting those who will handle financial contributions in the body of Christ both locally and, and in the body of Christ in the world. Those who handle the saints' money must be of tested and proven character. They must be devoted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they must be earnest in their display of godly love for the saints. In verses 19 to 21, Paul refers to the collection and transport of this money as, quote, this gracious work. He's used that phrase multiple times in these chapters. This gracious work... God's gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord Himself. There it is again. He then explains the reason for the great care that surrounds the handling of this gift. He says, taking precaution that no one should discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Look at that last part again. We have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Now, Paul is not instructing Christians to be men-pleasers. He says in Galatians 1, if you're trying to please men, you are no longer pleasing God. Verse 19 says, it is the Lord's glory that he seeks, not the glory of men. But Paul instructs us, both through his, his teaching and his own example, to take care that our administration of other people's money in the household of God, which is really God's money, is done in a manner that is entirely above reproach in the eyes of both God and men. We are to guard the reputation of Christ's church in the eyes of men in order to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ so that our actions will match up with our gospel proclamation rather than contradicting it. And, you know, I have to say it's amazing how often the, the treatment of money, the, the process of soliciting money in the church contradicts the message. It makes, in in so many circles of of what is called Christianity, the way money is handled makes it sound very much like money is the source of well-being instead of Christ. Here at Community Bible Chapel, we work hard to handle money exceedingly well. To guard the reputation of this local church and of the church in the world, but much more importantly, to live out the character of our Savior and Master. Much prayer and thought goes into every decision about how the financial gifts of the saints are handled at CBC. Every Sunday, immediately after our worship, two men of tested and long-proven character count the cash that was contributed during that morning. They carefully cross-check each other's count, and then each of them signs a form on which the total is recorded. Those men do not look at checks that were contributed. They don't know who contributed how much. A staff member of long-proven integrity and discretion processes the checks and makes the deposits. Financial contributions that are submitted online are processed by an established and highly reputable company called PushPay, and we don't look at anything of the detail of those contributions. We don't look at it. Neither I nor any of the other elders knows who gives or how much was given. We don't want to know favoritism shown to certain individuals because of how much they contribute financially has been the root of compromised practice and compromised theology in far too many churches. I could tell you some horror stories. We elders know the total of all contributions from week to week, but we know nothing about who gave or even how many individual gifts went into the total. We don't know, and we don't want to know. How about on the spending side? Well, decisions about how contributions to our general fund are spent to maintain the ministries and facilities of CBC are made by the elders as a group. It's not one person deciding how money is spent. Decisions about spending from our benevolence fund to meet specific needs that are made known to us are made by our benevolence committee, and they involve more than one decision maker. Some of those gifts require a decision by the elders as a group. The men who make up our benevolence committee do not write checks. A staff member writes the checks, so there's always another person who knows what was spent and how. Decisions about which missionaries are supported through our missions fund and how much each missionary receives are made by all of the elders together. And many factors go into those decisions. In the nearly 50 years, the 50-year history of Community Bible Chapel, we have never had an episode or even an accusation of fraudulent, corrupt or dishonorable use of money contributed to this church or through this church to others. Not one time. Now that does not mean, of course, that every person at CBC would have chosen to distribute every dollar given to CBC the same way that we have. But there has never been an accusation of any use of of funds that was less than God-honoring. 50 years, nearly 50 years. That's a long time. All right, enough about about process. The last verse of this morning's passage, verse 24, brings us back from process to principle, the principle that drives the process. The principle that is to drive all that is done with money is godly love. From cover to cover in the Bible, God declares that he is the preeminent advocate for the poor and the downcast. By caring for those in the household of God who have less than we do, we are showing off the loving, just, and merciful character of God. And that's what this gift that Paul is gathering is all about. This is the simple principle behind the Old Testament requirement to farmers to leave the gleanings of their fields for the poor to gather to freely gather. This is the simple principle behind the ordinance that required an Israelite to return each evening a coat that a debtor had given to him as a pledge of payment so that the, the person who owed, them the debt, owed him the debt would not be cold at night. This is the principle behind countless other specific instructions in the law of Moses, and behind every exhortation in the New Testament to care for the poor and oppressed in our midst. The principle is the loving, merciful, and just character of God. Care for the material needs of those who have less than we do goes to the very heart of what James calls true religion in James 1.27. The most ever-present theme... And everything that the Bible tells us about money is this. Either we will love money, or we will love with money. Paul concludes this morning's exhortation there in verse 24, his exhortation to the Corinthian saints, to do what God's Word from cover to cover exhorts His people to do, and that is to love with the money that God has entrusted to them. And there was a lot of money in Corinth. It was affluent like Dallas is affluent. Now listen again as I read verse 24. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. When Paul says openly before the churches, he's not telling individual believers at Corinth to make public how much each of them is contributing. Jesus made a big deal out of not making a show of our gifts in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul is telling the gathered church in Corinth to put their love on display in a very visible manner through their generous participation in this gift. In chapter 7, Paul talked of his great confidence in these Corinthian saints, now he exhorts them to demonstrate that that confidence was well-founded. How? By finishing what they started. By following through with the financial gift they already committed to give to the very needful saints in Jerusalem. In case anyone has missed it so far, the Bible everywhere treats money and stuff as instruments for the display of God's love. Let me say that again. The Bible everywhere treats money and stuff as instruments for the display of God's love. Our money and God's love are inextricably bound together in the divine genius of our loving God. Beloved, the great and transforming truth that Paul sets before us in these two chapters is that God intends for us to treat the money he gives to us as Jesus treated his own life. Let me read again what I'm convinced and many others are convinced is the key verse in chapters 8 and 9, and that is chapter 8, verse 9. I'm going to read verses 7 to 9 to make a connection with verse 24. Just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love that we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. What Paul is saying there is he's been talking about the Macedonian saints and the magnitude of their gift even in their poverty. Now he's saying to the Corinthian saints, in light of what they've done, now you do the same and and demonstrate, prove your love. Verse 9, here's the, the key verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor that you through His poverty might become rich. Now, I want you to see the connection between verse 8 and verse 24. Let me read those just those two verses together. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Verse 24, therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. God's invitation through Paul is for the Corinthian saints' To visibly demonstrate, to prove their love through their money, just like the Macedonians had. But their perfect template for doing so was not the Macedonians. Their perfect template and ours is the greatest gift ever given. What Paul is saying here should stop us in our tracks. It is a radical shift from the world. It's a, it's a radical transformation compared with the world's view of money. It wasn't money that Jesus gave up and poured out for us at the cross. It was his life in all respects. It was his lifeblood, which is the life of the physical body, At the same time, it was His perfect and until the cross, the eternally uninterrupted communion that He had with His Father. The communion which is the very essence of life. Jesus laid down all that is life indeed to give His life to us. Now Paul tells us, that that greatest of all gifts ever given, that greatest of all sacrifices ever presented to God tells you and me what to do with our money. And what, what drove me to tears earlier this week as I considered this is how utterly inconsequential my money is compared to the poured out life of Christ. I, I was, it, it, it was stunning to me that God would make any connection between those two. But He does. See, a hundred years from now, the money that I have in my bank account right now will have zero effect on anyone's well-being, mine or anyone else's. But on that same day, a hundred years from now, the poured out blood of Jesus Christ will still be the wellspring of life and well-being to all who dwell in God's presence. So how can one of those be connected with the other? How can something so transient and vaporous and temporary as as material wealth have anything to do with the poured out life of Jesus Christ? That's exactly the connection that, that God makes. God invites you and me right now to sanctify the money that He has given to us to set it apart as holy to Him. And He tells us that when we do so, our money becomes eternally useful. Right now. It becomes an instrument of life and blessing to other people right now. How? Well, our role in this magnificent connection between love and money is to generously give some of our money away with the same motive that drove Jesus to give His life for us. And that motive is godly love I can't I can't buy life for anyone with my blood or my money but here's what I can do by his grace and power I can agree with God that every penny that he gives me is his I can hold to it very very loosely continually looking for opportunities that he gives me to put it to use to show off the love that he has put in my heart for him for his people, and for the lost. When you and I embrace that approach to the money that God has put in our hands, he takes something otherwise inconsequential and he sanctifies it. And he does mighty and eternal good to other people through it. That applies to everything that he puts in our hands. He makes our money display his Love. Of course, it's a far lesser display of that love than the poured out blood of Jesus. But God very clearly connects the lesser display with the greater right there in chapter 8, verse 9. He does it again at the end of chapter 9 when he says, but thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Jesus became poor to lavish upon us the unfathomable riches of Christ. Now we get to make ourselves poorer in material things in order to make others richer in the things that constitute life indeed. I hope you heard what I just said. See, the wealth that God imparts to others through our gifts of mere money is a wealth infinitely greater than money. It is the riches of godly love. The worth of every financial gift that you and I give is not measured by God in dollars and cents. The worth of those gifts is measured by the love for Him and for His image bearers that compels us to joyfully give it. The widow's might was worth more in the eyes of Jesus than the entire aggregate wealth of all the unbelieving billionaires on earth today. Because the measure of her gift was the love for God and for people that drove her to give it. That's real wealth. Oh, that we, oh, that, that I, would measure the worth of money the way God does. That we would love with our money as Jesus loved us with His life. Dear Father, we ask You to do Your good work in our hearts so that the money and the material provision that You give to us becomes a vessel of Your love mightily used to bless others. Especially those who are of the household of the living God just as you instructed. We ask this in the name and for the sake of the one who is the greatest gift of all, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.